الجزيرة بودكاست Some of the most powerful people in the world have gathered in the Swiss Alps over the last week for the annual World Economic Forum meeting, more popularly known as Davos. This year's theme is cooperation in a fragmented world. That's not to be mistaken with the theme from 2018, creating a shared future in a fractured world. Most years, Davos is pretty similar. The elite usually gather here to talk about injustice and inequality. Uh, the focus on sustainability is sometimes a little bit blurred by the constant arrival of private jets and helicopters. Injustice and inequality might be what's advertised, but the subtext is money. The CEOs of the world's biggest companies use it as an opportunity to schmooze and make deals all in one place. Attendance is invite only, and the attendees include everyone from heads of state to Hollywood celebrities. And they talk about things like this. I think we're ready for a new environmental capitalism. And this. Purpose and profit equal each other. They're not against each other. But what goes on behind the scenes at Davos? And why does it matter to the rest of us? I'm Hala Mahiyad-Din, and this is The Take. Davos is different things for different people, depending upon how you attend. And that's Peter Goodman. He's a global economics reporter for the New York Times and the author of Davos Man, How Billionaires Devoured the World. And he's been covering billionaires for a long time, whether it's investigating the causes of the 2008 financial crisis or interviewing some of the world's most powerful people, including during his many trips to Davos. For most of us, it is a sort of plain vanilla earnest a bunch of panel conversations held in this place called the Congress Center in the oddly charmless village of Davos, high up in the Swiss Alps. You go in through various security. If you wanted to simulate it, put on your snow boots and then check in for a flight about 20 times. It's an endless logistical torment. The headlines that might come out of Davos are things like pledges to plant one trillion trees or decarbonizing pension funds. There have also been a few political highlights, like the meetings that first broke the ice between North and South Korea. There are conversations on the economy, climate change, migration. I've seen, I'm, I'm not making this up, I've seen billionaires engage in a simulation of the Syrian refugee experience where they submit to being blindfolded and led around in the dark while someone's hollering at them in Arabic, demanding their papers. And then they go off to, you know, some banquet held by HSBC or, you know, Accenture, and they eat truffles and, and drink champagne and, and get back to the deal-making. The real Davos is the part that most of us will never see, and that's these secret meetings, not where they're making rules for all of us on top of the mountain, but where companies are doing deals with one another. It sounds unbearable and fascinating in equal measure. 
There's two Davoses, really, isn't there? I can tell you this, it's more than two. I mean, everybody's got a different Davos experience, and most people spend a lot of their time imagining that they're in the wrong place and that someone else is having a much more interesting, meaningful Davos than they are. Peter says the World Economic Forum staff, led by the German economist Klaus Schwab, are spending most of their time making connections between major dealmakers in private lounges. You know, this is where you're the head of a European or a North American fossil fuel company, and Schwab can introduce you to the head of a Persian Gulf company with connections to the monarchy, and you can do your deal in private. Then, you know, off campus, there are all these parties. The party to be at last night was the Coca-Cola party. It was jazz, it was elegant, it was baby bowls of prawns, Coke Zero, and President Bill Clinton elegantly dressed in a... In a these parties are held by people like this guy, Mark Benioff. There has been a mantra for too long that the business of business is business. But today, the business about business is improving the state of the world. He's an American billionaire and the CEO of a software company called Salesforce. He's also on the board of trustees for the World Economic Forum. A couple years ago when I was there, he had this Hawaiian-themed party. He's big on co-opting native Hawaiian uh, concepts. Everyone's a member of the Ohana, which I guess means tribe or, or family. So he actually flew in the Black Eyed Peas and they performed for a couple hundred of his chosen guests that night. And people are walking around in plastic lays and drinking Hawaiian-themed cocktails. Google has a big party. So, so it's Davos is just all things to all people, but ultimately it's a money-making enterprise. You have been several times. It's uh, Yeah, I think I've been 10 times. Golly, 10 times more than me. Well, it's <laughs> so I wonder what I'm missing out on. It sounds like quite the blast. But this has given you plenty of time, hasn't it, to witness what you call Davos Man in its natural habitat. Can you just talk us through that term, Davos Man, and where it comes from? So Davos Man was coined by the political scientist Samuel Huntington back in 2004. And he was referring most directly to people who go to the World Economic Forum. Uh, but what he really meant was people whose wealth and power are so vast that they're unlike anyone else. Peters borrowed the term and made it a little more specific. I'm interested in the subset of the billionaire class that would have us believe that not only are they not our problem, they are the solution to our problems. They would have us believe that uh, everything from inequality and tax injustice to climate change, you know, these are problems that they can take care of out of the goodness of their hearts because they're ultimately running their businesses not to make money, but to do good. The ultimate mouthpiece for this view is Mark Benioff. There's one example of this that stood out to Peter, and it's from Davos 2021, held virtually thanks to the pandemic. And Benioff said, In the pandemic, it was CEOs in many, many cases all over the world who were the heroes. They are the ones who stepped forward with their financial resources, their corporate resources, their employees, their factories, and pivoted rapidly, not for profit, but to save the world. 
I was working as a journalist during the pandemic, we were more focused on, uh, you know, the actual healthcare workers and the, the actual sure. ground zero of what was going on. So, so that remark slipped my notice. But do they actually believe that? Yeah, I think he does believe it. He has the strongest case to make that he's really serious about the philanthropy. Mark Benioff has his own Silicon Valley CEO origin story. He was working at a cutthroat company. Then, in 1996, he says he reached a kind of tipping point. So, there I was, kind of a lost 30-something. And I did what all lost 30-somethings do. I went to India. While he was there, he met with a Hindu spiritual leader known as the Hugging Saint. And she said something he seemed to take to heart. While you are working so hard to change the world and create all this great technology, and I'm sure all of it will come to pass, don't forget, don't forget to do something for others. Well, you know, we can laugh about that, but it is true that he actually does devote 1% of his revenues and 1% of staff time to philanthropic efforts. And, you know, to a greater degree than most, he's actually delivered. Uh, he famously kicked in several million dollars for a ballot measure in the city of San Francisco that increased taxes on tech companies like his own in order to fund homeless services. But the part of the story that Benioff does not like to discuss is, yeah, okay, how do we deal with the fact that at the same time you're engaging in this sort of philanthropy, you're a member of the Business Roundtable, which is a big lobby shop in the U.S. that played a central role in persuading President Trump to deliver the largest tax cuts for people like Mark Benioff and his corporation Salesforce than any time in history. President Trump's efforts to dramatically rewrite the U.S. tax code, critics slamming the plan, saying it would massively redistribute wealth to the richest 1% of Americans. But I think, back to your original question, he really does believe that he's a force for good. And when you're the force for good, the more money you've got and the more money you get to keep, as opposed to having to give it to those you know, horrible bureaucrats in the government, well, the more good you can do. And there's a specific idea that Benioff and other members of the Davos set evangelize. He is a very enthusiastic cheerleader for this concept of stakeholder capitalism. As opposed to just regular old capitalism, where businesses are responsible to their shareholders. In stakeholder capitalism, instead of being solely focused on making those shareholders richer, Businesses need to make capitalism work better for everyone. They need to bring in stakeholders. It's a nebulous term. Here's Davos founder Klaus Schwab, one of the pioneers of the idea. We should integrate all stakeholders of society into the search of solution of problems. Now it's about taking care of stakeholders like local communities, labor, never labor unions. They're very careful not to refer to labor unions, but labor, you know, Benioff uh, actually said in a TV appearance a couple years ago. We realize the planet is a key stakeholder today. And Benioff's not the only CEO espousing stakeholder capitalism. 
when finance really understands a problem, we move that, you know, we we take that future problem and bring it forward. And that's what we saw. That's Larry Fink. That finance has caught on to the idea that we need to move forward on on sustainability. He's known as sort of like the Wizard of Oz of Wall Street in that he is obscure to the outside person. Fink is another one of the Davos men Peter writes about. And as the CEO of BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, he's in charge of quite a lot of money. He has essentially vacuumed up pension funds, university endowments, individual fortunes, and built this tremendous pool of capital that at one point he was managing more than 10 trillion US dollars. You heard me right, that's trillion. That's basically the GDPs of Japan and Germany combined, plus a few hundred billion or so left over. He supposedly knows more about markets and the of-the-minute movements of money than everybody else. Somehow, he still managed to miss the 2008 financial crisis, the 2010 sovereign debt crisis in Europe, uh, the pandemic and its volatility. But, you know, nonetheless, people keep paying money because when you manage all that money, you know where the money's going. Fink's also held some influence in the Federal Reserve, the central banking system for the United States. If you think that sounds like a conflict of interest, well, so do some U.S. government officials. But the Federal Reserve consulted Fink's BlackRock during the 2008 financial crash and then again in the early months of the pandemic, while BlackRock continued to operate as usual. And guess what? The value of his funds start going up in anticipation that he will advise the Fed to put the money into some of the very funds that he controls. And that's what happened. Is that not illegal? Is that not like insider trading or something? Well, you know, if it happened in in another context, uh, it certainly would look that way. But this was a dire emergency. No time for the niceties of normal market operations to hold. But Peter says there was still a contract one that said that there was supposed to be a wall put in place between the parts of BlackRock that managed U.S. federal money and the parts that managed its clients' money. In financial lingo, that's called a Chinese wall. That wall was a cooling-off period of two weeks. And then you can go back to the other side of the impregnable Chinese wall and just pretend you don't know any of those things that you learned while you were working as the banker to the world's central bank. It is an amazing conflict of interest, and, and, and some lawmakers described it as such, but nothing changed. It seems there is this disconnect between the stuff that these Davos men are spouting and, and what a lot of people would arguably call reality. I'd never heard of Mark Benioff until we started researching this. Do you think that perhaps the lack of popular knowledge of who these people are is contributing to a lack of scrutiny in some way that they can come out with this kind of nonsense? I don't think that obscurity is a strategy. Because I think for a, a lot of people, the mere fact of being a billionaire is a sign that these guys have to be geniuses. Otherwise, how could they have amassed all this wealth and power 
we like to engage in the narrative that, you know, if I work hard and stay out of trouble and have good ideas, I, I could be one of these guys. I mean, no, nobody accidentally ends up with a billion dollars, fair enough, but nobody ends up with a billion dollars through simply, you know, running a solid, honest business that's solving somebody's problem. More on how those people did end up with a billion dollars after the break. Hey everyone, Sami Zaydan here from Essential Middle East. On this week's show, we're going to ask who's sending weapons to Yemen and why. The nuts and bolts of Davos don't change much from year to year. But in 2023, even as it brings together a record number of attendees, there seems to be a cloud over the relevance of the gathering. It's something I talked to take producer Nagin Oliay about as we put together this episode. So, Nagin, Davos happens every year. But we had a conversation in our editorial meetings about why we wanted to cover it this year. We've covered all kinds of billionaires over the years of The Take. We've talked about Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk's name comes up again and again and again. But what we haven't done is talk about the Larry Finks and the Mark Benioffs and the guys like them that Peter has mentioned and the amount of power that they have. Before I worked at The Take, I was managing editor of a website called inequality.org. And we would dig into the numbers about how billionaire wealth is concentrated. The global nonprofit Oxfam looks into this too, and they recently released a report tied to Davos about the gains the wealthiest have been making over the last 10 years. This is something they've done for several years now, and the numbers are just getting more and more wild. So I talked to Max Lawson. He's the head of their inequality policy, and this is what he told me about their findings. In those 10 years, the wealth of the world's billionaires has pretty much doubled, and the number of billionaires has pretty much doubled. So I'm glad that Oxfam doesn't have performance-related pay because I think I would have been sacked years ago because inequality has got a lot worse. So, Nagin, what did the Oxfam report find? So they've had some pretty striking numbers, and the outlook is bleak. One way of putting it is if you're in the bottom 90% of humanity... Uh, then for every dollar of new wealth that you gained, a billionaire gained $1.7 million. So the, the money just rolls in. And yes, the, the billionaire classes as a group are $2.6 trillion richer than they were than before the pandemic. $2.6 trillion, just to put that in real terms, that's bigger than Italy in terms of the economy. But it's not just that the billionaires, and there are a lot of billionaires, there's about 2,700 of them in the world, it's not just that they're getting richer. Part of the problem is that the rest of the world isn't keeping up. Oxfam looked at countries around the world where workers' wages were falling behind inflation. And they came up with an estimate, or what Max actually thinks is an underestimate. You're looking at 1.7 billion workers who are basically going to have a real terms pay cut this year because inflation is higher than their wages. I mean, it's an absolute scandal. And then obviously in the poorest countries too. So. Enormous suffering at the bottom combined with enormous wealth at the top um, is what's going on as we speak. So I think that's a key message, really, that it's just a stupidly inefficient way of, of running a world to give, you know, 63 cents in every dollar to the richest 1%. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. So given all of this, I mean, why is a group like Oxfam 
even going to Davos in the first place? Well, I asked him about that. Max pointed out that when Davos is happening, there is this moment in media circus and reflection about inequality that we don't see other times in the year. And when I asked him whether he was worried about whether their presence would give a veneer of credibility to the whole thing, this is what he told me. We definitely worry. You worry about all those things. You don't want to give something a legitimacy that it doesn't really have. But then the flip side of that is, if you're not there as Oxfam, if you're not making these key points, then you're just giving a kind of open space to the world's elite to pontificate about what they believe are the solutions. They like to have much more kind of win-win solutions, things like more education or better technology, the kinds of things that make them feel good but also feel comfortable at the same time. But there have been moments when those other solutions have crept in at Davos, specifically taxation. Good morning, everybody. One of those moments was back in 2019, thanks to a viral clip from one panellist, the Dutch historian Rutger Bregman. Here's Peter again. He's supposed to be talking about universal basic income. He's asked to say something on this panel. And he launches this tirade at the forum. We can talk for a very long time about all these stupid <laughs> philanthropy schemes. We can invite Bono once more, but come on, it's, we gotta be talking about taxes. Yeah, exactly. That's it, taxes, taxes, taxes. All the rest is bullshit, in my opinion. Thank you. What people I think don't remember is that the moderator of the panel, who's a guy named Edward Felsenthal, who at that time, I guess, is the editor-in-chief of Time Magazine, recently purchased by Mark Benioff turns to Jane Goodall. Let's let Jane, let's go back to... Maybe uh, the world's most famous naturalist. Some of the solutions do seem rather obvious. Why can't we get there? What is it about us that we see, we see the solution and um, the urgency, but we can't get there? And, you know, the moderator is complicit in dismissing this as some sort of, you know, species defect. So what happens at Davos when there's truth-telling? Well, usually there's some conversation about decorum. You know, it's crude to point fingers at, at people in the room. We're all earnestly trying to solve the world's problems, and that's what perpetuates the status quo. At Davos, it's always about win-win solutions, you know? And, and if there's a win-win solution, then no one has to sacrifice. And if no one has to sacrifice, and we live in a time of extraordinary inequality, then the people who have most of the stuff don't have to give it up. And the status quo perpetuates itself. None of what we're discussing here in terms of economic inequality and the impact to our democracies has happened by accident. That's not to say that it's a conspiracy. It's like discussing climate change. You know, it's happened so gradually but steadily over time that it's almost invisible. But there are powerful people who have amassed unprecedented sums of money, who have figured out how to use that money to amass more power. None of our experiences in our societies as we watch, you know, middle-class life under assault, none of this is by accident. And, and, and we have to recognize that billionaires are not gonna solve our problems. They are our problem. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Nagin Oliay with Ashish Malhotra, Chloe K. Lee, Amy Walters, Miranda Lynn, 
and me, Hala Mahiadin. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya El-Malek and Adam Abugad are the Take's engagement producers. Alexandra Locke is the Take's executive producer. And Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back 